meant to quote my favourite rock band, hope is what we say and do. And hope is having a plan. Hope is manifested through action. Hope is acquitting yourself well. And hope is also fundamentally tied to love because love is not a calculation of the odds. Love is not a matter of saying, well, we've got some chance at this, but you know, the chances aren't good. Loving is proceeding with your whole heart and hope is proceeding with your whole heart and with all of your effort and with everything that you can muster. version of us and how do we actually build it? I'm Lillian Spencer and you're listening to The Remakers. Hey everybody, welcome to The Remakers. I'm Lillian Spencer and I'm so thrilled that you are here today to join me as we speak with David Ritter. He is the CEO of a little known environment organization, just a little scrappy startup, Greenpeace Australia Pacific, no big deal. He is also an author. He is a lawyer. He has been a lawyer for native title rights. He is a father of two adorable girls and just basically an all around wonderful human being. So he talks to us about all the things today about how business is changing, how individuals are becoming part of changing systems instead of just feeling powerless to do anything about climate change. He talks about the role of governments and democracy, how he stays sane and happy while doing hard things. It is just a joyous, inspiring, and really deeply hopeful conversation. So I do want to warn you that there are a few noisy airplanes overhead at different times, just because we live in the world and sometimes there's a flight path and there's nothing you can do about it. But I think you are going to absolutely love this conversation. So without further ado, here's David Ritter. It is my pleasure today to have on David Ritter, CEO of Greenpeace Australia. Welcome, David. It is so wonderful to have you on the Remakers podcast. We really appreciate you being here today. Thank you, Lily. It is delightful to join you. Now, I wanted to start with just a bit of your background. Um, You were raised in Perth, which, as you've pointed out, is the most isolated capital city on the planet. Um, Could you just give us a little bit of a flavor for you as a kid? Were you like the good kid? Were you a nerd? Were you shy? Were you a total rabble rouser from the beginning? Tell us a little bit about growing up. Uh, so, look, I grew up in Perth's uh, foothills um, at a time when they really weren't that built up. And so I had a lot of freedom. You know, there was I was the youngest of seven kids, but my, my six siblings were all much older than I was. And I think my parents were a little bit over sort of um, parental scrutiny by that stage. So I had a lot of freedom running around um, first three and a half acres and then we moved to a slightly smaller place, a little over two acres. Um, and so it was in the outdoors. And then um, in, um, in school I was a probably fairly annoying combination of bookish but also mischievous. Um, so, you know, I kind of did pretty well in school, but I, I was also a real nuisance in, in class. And, you know, there's a, there's a 
plenty of teachers out there to whom I, I, I owe an apology. Um, and in fact, some I have apologised to over the uh, 21st century uh, social media platforms that enable that sort of thing. Um, and, and I was crazy about sport. I mean, I was, I was crazy about sport as a kid. So, you know, I would, I would have my nose in a book, but then I would equally just be glued to the, the football or the cricket. What did you want to be when you grew up? Did you have anything? <laughs> well, look, I've told this story before that I had a picture of the Rainbow Warrior on my wall even when I was a kid, but I also had a picture of uh, plenty of cricketers, of, of pop stars, um, uh, you know, cartoons cut out of, uh, of Snoopy books. So um, there was no predestination in any of that. But look, I, I always wanted to be in the thick of things, um, I guess. So from a, from a very early age, I... I really admired people who had been um, in the thick of those moments of, of social change. Um, and I, I, I guess I did always wonder how you would end up doing that from a place that felt sort of as quiet as Perth. But, um, yeah, I, I, that's, that's where I saw myself. Well, and you succeeded. I mean, firstly, you left Perth and went on to London and then Sydney. And kind of in that time, you've worn so many hats. You've been a lawyer, you've been well, a lawyer for native title and land rights, you've been an academic, um, an author, and yet you talk about that that Rainbow Warrior poster on your wall. What drew you when you first made that kind of official career change into working in environmentalism? What drew you to Greenpeace? Did it feel like a natural evolution or a sort of change of tact? Um, look, I'd always, I'd always had a deep deep affection for, for Greenpeace. I mean, we, we don't take any money from any government or any business ever. And so, um, you know, when when someone bounded up to me on the street in, in the mid-90s and asked if I'd give 30 bucks a month or whatever it was to Greenpeace, I was one of those people who actually said, yes, I'm pleased to be asked, sign me up. Um, and, I, and I recently discovered a diary entry to myself, which I'd completely forgotten about from my late 20s that sort of and I've been a very poor diary keeper. There are sort of patches of it, but where I've, I've sort of written to myself, yeah, look, this whole commercial law thing is going okay, but, you know, what about the things you really want to do? And then I actually write to myself, what about Greenpeace, question mark. And it was strange finding it because I had no recollection of writing it and I really I really don't believe in sort of predestination in that in that kind of way. Um, but, look, I'd, 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 lo I'd, I'd, I'd loved being a native title lawyer and serving the um, uh, traditional uh, owners of the Pilbara, Murchison and Gascoigne regions in Western Australia, that was um, really, it was an honour and it was tremendous work to do. But there just sort of came a moment when I became tired of, um, uh, you know, when you're a lawyer and you take instructions, you, you're still at one remove from the actual engine of, of change. And it's not that I don't think lawyers can and do great things, but I just started to feel that um, I wanted the, the rawness of, of being the person, of being in the arena myself rather than taking the instructions from, some, from, from, um, from my clients. And also was given a really direct piece of information about life by a by some of my clients when you quite well one day when I sort of turned up to a, a meeting in a, in a community out in the Gascoigne and um, they said, look, you know, thanks for coming, David. We know why you're here, but we've got, we've got deeper things to talk about today. 
And I can't remember quite what the sort of deeper issue around inequality was that had gripped the gripped the community at that point. But it it really just sort of communicated to me very very directly that um, that there were other subterranean things going on, and I really wanted to be working on the on the structural causes of um, of some of the challenges we face in the world. And for me, that meant um, uh, the environment and inequality. Um, and, you know, there's, there's various ways of telling the story, but within sort of roughly two years via a conversation with myself up a hill in New Zealand and various other things um, following a, um, the love of my life and, you know, various ways of telling the story, but I ended up in London needing a job. Um, and there's an advertisement in The Guardian for a senior campaigner at Greenpeace. Um, and they were foolish enough to offer me the job. And I say foolish enough because I think I was extremely um, uh, bad at it. At, at first, I really genuinely took time to adjust to the, the, the pace and the, uh, just the strategic focus, which was quite different to what I'd known in my previous roles. And then, you know, you were so bad at it that they promoted you and offered you the job of CEO in Greenpeace Australia. <laughs> well, look, I mean, I'm, re I'm really, like, I, I'm, I'm being very, very authentic with you. I really did struggle for my first year or so, but I worked in a very, very good um, outfit and people took me under their wing and they taught me and there was a sort of moment when it all kind of, and it really was quite sudden when it sort of clicked. Um, and... So I got sort of bumped up a few uh, more levels of responsibility inside Greenpeace UK and then the, the job came up in um, Australia Pacific and you know, I loved living in London. I loved the, um, the richness of, of media, of civil society, of debate. It was, um, it was at the moment of the global financial crisis and I was, I was walking down um, uh, uh, one of the sort of story lanes near the... Uh, London School of Economics, where I was I was studying part time when the sort of capitalism at bay headline was on the front page of the Economist. So you know I loved living in London. I've got relatives there. I'm very close to. I loved the the folk I worked with at Greenpeace. I learned so much from them. But ultimately, there 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 is a sort of iron iron law perhaps about being able to be most effective in your community of origins and. I felt the, I felt the calling from across the seas very genuinely um, that, that there was a job that I'd, I'd love to have a go at trying to do to the best of my abilities. Now, you're also um, a father. You've got two daughters, I believe. Is that right? That's right, yes. And how old are they? I'm just curious. Uh, they are now eight and 12. And, um, yeah, I mean, I... <laughs> I do absolutely dote on them. I mean, having children um, both destroys and recreates uh, your life. Um, and they're there all the time in everything I do. They're there all the time in everything I do. And um, you can't, you know, you can't look at the projections of, of climate and, and environment without mapping them onto the timelines of your daughter's lives but you know putting to one side the sort of the 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 darkness of what what could happen um they're just the source of joy and life and light every day every day 
um, even at their most annoying. <laughs> so true. That paradox is so real. Um, you know, and that's that's a good segue into one of the things I wanted to ask you about in your role now as a leader in this very vexed and dark and scary and often very depressing um it's not even really a debate about climate change. It's just challenge of climate change. And you were speaking at a conference and afterwards, um, years ago now, and then afterwards this sort of young boy approached you, teenager, and he, he kind of came up with a quite a vulnerable and poignant question. And you've written about this beautifully in a recent article for the Griffith Review, and I will put a link to that in the show notes. But I was just wondering if you could read us just a part of that story um, for our listeners, because I think it paints a really clear picture of that role that you have now. Um, well, you're you're very kind, and I do I do enjoy um, writing. It, I think it's. It's an outlet, but it's also um, formative in terms of how you think about the, or for me anyway, how I think about the world. And it helps me, um, it's helped me develop, I, I guess, I think, along the um, along the journey. And um, yeah, I'd be happy to read that section out. But just to mention as well that, that what was striking about the, um, uh, the lad in general was that it was before the school strikers, but I think I've come to that in the passage so. I guess he's 14. He has pale skin and nervous brown eyes behind glasses. The stubborn russet hair and rangy physique gives open expression to the not yet quite fitting together parts of mid-adolescence. It is still years before Greta Thunberg and the dynamism of the global school strike movement will fundamentally change the demography of international climate activism, so the kid stands out. He speaks hesitantly with an instinctive sideways glance as if wishing there were no others present to overhear what he's about to say. I have the sense that he's straining not to show too much emotion. There's a kind of cauterised look about his face, perhaps just shyness, maybe more. An uneasy beginning verging on a stutter before he asks me bluntly, Is there any hope? I should be prepared for this question, but I am unready. The conversation with the young stranger feels vertiginous. Now I think I understand the boy's look, conveying his deepest existential fear about the future of all things, no doubt also freighted with the more mundane weight of worry about just appearing foolish. I have a sudden sense of the lad's vulnerability as he puts trust in someone he's never met. I'm immediately conscious, with a shock, of the responsibility I hold in this conversation. I'm not sure I know how to do this. Others lean in to hear my response. There's the slightest of pauses while I swallow back the rising self-doubt and look the youth in the eyes. I lean forwards towards him. I might have put a hand on one of his shoulders. Yes, I answer, with my whole self. I know the words I say to be true, but I'm speaking them as the bearer, not the owner. Yes, there is hope. We stand before each other as pilgrims. There is no way but forward into the dark. <sighs> so um, it's almost hard to come back after, after that because it's such a 
powerful and beautiful and gives me chills and terrifies me all at once. I assume that you still have hope. Can you talk to me a little bit about what is bringing you hope, but also how you try to work or lead or do hope because we know, you know, or work or lead in a way that spreads hope to others because we know that while we talk about hope often as kind of a a sort of passive thing, you know, something brings you hope and so you feel hope or you don't, there's also this sort of psychology that says, actually, hope is something you do. You know, it's not something as our colleague Anne Prasino has said, it's not something you sit on the couch and feel. So I'm curious about your thoughts on hope and this moment and climate change. Yes, well, to be to be absolutely clear, of course I feel hope. Um, and that that sense at that time that I try and describe in that passage, I mean that 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 moment really did sit with me. I couldn't I couldn't sleep afterwards that day and uh, sorry, that night, and when I did get to sleep, I dreamt of the encounter, and it, it sort of stuck in my mind. And the real, the reason why it stuck in my mind and weighed on me so much is because it's the first time I could remember really being just challenged as someone who holds the responsibilities that I do on whether there was hope and on how I would answer that question in that kind of way. Um, you know, I, I guess um, as the science has worsened, as the data has worsened, as politics became more recalcitrant, it really went from a situation of people saying, well, it looks bad, but of course we've got time and we'll get there to a sort of moment of people really wondering whether that was going to ever happen. And um, I, I share your analysis that hope is not passive, hope is active. I mean, to quote my favourite rock band, hope is what we say and do. And hope is having a plan. Hope is manifested through action. Hope is acquitting yourself well. And hope is also fundamentally tied to love because love is not a calculation of the odds. Love is not a matter of saying, well, we've got some chance at this, but, you know, the chances aren't good. Loving is proceeding with your whole heart and hope is proceeding with your whole heart and with all of your effort and with everything that you can muster. But hope is also not giving over to the idea that you bear everything upon your shoulders. We've all got to have some degree of detachment to be able to work effectively through this. So part of being conscious about hope is really carving out the area of where you can impact as meaningfully as possible, as big as possible, as large as possible, but not taking on board the things that you cannot do anything about. And also accepting that there is a degree of unknowability about the future. And there's a line that, um, I mean, we've talked about this before, Lily, and, and you know I, I love the, the book um, uh, Hope in the Dark by Rebecca Solnit, and I refer to that in the essay that you mentioned. But Solnit talks about the natality of darkness, and she has that phrase about the darkness of the womb as well as the grave. Now, that's a line I can't say without the hair standing up on my end. And so when in that passage I, I say that we, we stand there as, as climate pilgrims and we we, we look forward into the darkness. It is a darkness that contains hope as much as it contains fear. Thank you. I feel like you're giving me therapy right now. All of us, just thank you. Um, 
And I, you know, while we're on this sort of very interesting topic of, okay, so how do we do hope? Say that we are out there in the world, someone's listening to this who doesn't have an obvious means through a paid role or in some other way to be part of of, of really trying to drive um, positive change on this. I, f- I feel like we get asked a lot, well, what can I do? You know, people hear about climate change. I'm sure you have been asked more times than you could ever care to remember. Well, what can I do? And yet the answers always kind of seem a little bit lacking or or frustrating. Or, and I think partly that's because the premise of the question is what can I do as an individual? And and that's an important thing, right? Like we need agency, but at the same time, we bought into believing that it's our fault as individuals. We're responsible as individuals for climate change. So we have to fly less, eat less meat, you know, spend less on crap. And and I kind of feel like we've sort of been hoodwinked in that process, right? Like, is it true that the fossil fuel companies came up with the carbon footprint idea and like giving everybody something to do, like go calculate your carbon footprint and then see how you can minimize it? So so what what is some better advice for people who are trying to be part of systemic change and how can we empower them better as advocates and allies and leaders? Well, Look, I, I, I love I love getting the question, and the first response I guess to have is if someone is asking the question, "What can I do?" Just invite them to feel the incredible sense of life, love, power, and responsibility that just goes with asking the question, because that itself is a moment of liberation because it places you as someone who has agency. And as Michael Mann, who I'm an enormous fan of Michael's work, I think he's one of the the great um, scientist communicators in in this moment of climate emergency. As Michael says, it is there is urgency, but we have agency. And so feeling that agency of the moment when someone says, what can I do? Now, of course, you are 100% right that the what can I do is not about individual consumption actions. I mean, you know, do these things, of course, we should all try and lead good lives. Yes, yes, yes. Um, But, you know, as someone said quite bluntly to me recently, don't expect to be thanked for just flushing the toilet. Like, what we actually need is structural change, systems change. But the fantastic thing is that with that agency that we all have, we can effect through making our contribution, systems change, structural change. How do we do it? Because we are all connected to things larger than ourselves. So it's the it's the great Naomi Klein line, you know, when she's asked, what should I do as an individual? Her response is always, stop thinking of yourself as an individual. And instead, use that agency to shift the things that you are part of that are bigger than you. So for example, let's use some practical examples. The story I love of the chief educator in a kindergarten in Victoria, Albert Park Kinder, that said, well, what if our kindergarten became the first carbon neutral kindergarten in Australia? Think what that would do in terms of how that changes the story, shifts the system, creates a model for others. Think about the communicators who are all communications professionals who have said, we will not do work for the fossil fuel industry will try and shift an industry 
Think of every business that, that and you know, forgive the quick Greenpeace reference, but every business that Greenpeace supporters have worked with to shift that has made a 100% clean electricity commitment um, to, to be there before 2025. Now, in each of those businesses, there are individuals working at every level who have said, well, what I can do is I can shift my business. I can help shift my business. And that's not just about CEOs. Sure, you need leadership from, from the boardroom, but it's also about technicians and it's about communications people and it's about store managers and all of the rest. Thank you. That is the best answer to that question I've ever heard. And, and I want to talk to you more about business because I think there is this perception, at least from the public point of view, that we've gone from looking at business as, as either, frankly, an adversary on climate action or maybe a bit of a bystander to kind of an accelerator and more of an ally. And, you know, Greenpeace has had some experience with this recently that I'd, I'd love you to tell us a little bit about, um, both the good and the bad, because I, I know you can't paint it all with one brush. No, of course. And look... Um, uh, businesses and businesses are amoral, profit-maximising entities um, when they are established under the general corporations law in Australia. So I don't tr tend to sort of go down the path of good business or bad business. But um, what what can business be encouraged to do? Now, look at a, at a structural level, I do think we should be changing the rules so that it is easier for business to be ethical. Because in my experience, most people who work in businesses just want to be able to go to work and do a good job and know that they're doing something that, that in which they have autonomy and it's, it's meaningful work and it doesn't do any harm to the world. But mostly people don't want to have to think about that all the time. They actually just want to be able to good, do a good job and know that in doing a good job, they're, they're not doing harm. So I do think at a structural level, the rules need to be changed. But even within the rules as we are, I think we are, we are seeing a moment where um, business just increasingly recognises that things have to move or we are all toast and that includes business. And so, so there is a very strong business case for moving. There is employee expectation around moving. There is stakeholder expectation around moving. Um, it's turning up in the sort of criteria for, for tendering and in expectations in B2B contracts. Um, someone, a fairly senior person inside one of the businesses we've been uh, uh, working with um, recently said to me that there was now a virtuous circle that was starting to develop of just business sort of pushing in the direction of, of shifting to um, the kind of ambitious transition that takes us on the pathway to um, net zero um, by within the time frame that we need. Um, so, you know, specifically Greenpeace, um, we made the decision um, in, in conversation and collaboration with other organisations because collaboration is absolutely key, but, but we made the decision that, that part of what Greenpeace would contribute um, uh, in Australia Pacific would be a campaign to shift a whole lot of major front-facing corporate energy users to adopt a commitment to 100% clean electricity for all of their Australian operations by the end of 2025. And despite the interruption of COVID, that campaign has succeeded in, to the extent that we've seen 
Bunnings, Woolworths, Coles, uh, Aldi, uh, Telstra, uh, TPG, um, Coca-Cola Amateur, Australia, New Zealand, um, Officeworks, others, I, I lose track, that have made these commitments. And, you know, this is really significant because not only does it shift whole percentages of the national electricity market into wind and solar, not only does it create a whole lot of measurable um, reduction in, in emissions, more than five and a half million tonnes, not only does it enable you to track all these new jobs in renewables, but it is also fundamentally changing the story. Because when you have um, uh, businesses of that kind of scale who are saying to their own workforce, I mean, Coles alone employs 120,000 people, um, we are going together to zero then the whole fabric of the country starts to change. And, and you actually start to move also just in, in, in terms of how one makes change into a really a more nuanced idea of what business is, that, that business is not just the brand, it's not just the board. Business is also a set of social relations. And I've, I've always made it my habit to, to do two things when, when a company makes the commitment. And, you know, if you... If you make yourself a nuisance to a company as Greenpeace does in the in the name of principle, then it's really important to say thank you and they do the right thing. So I've always made a point of, you know, seeing if the if the CEO will take one final conversation to just say thank you. Um, but then the other thing I've made a habit of doing is for every one of these companies to just pop into their nearest store after they've made the commitment. And to just find the nearest person who doesn't look like they're too busy and won't mind a short interruption to say, hey, just want to let you know, I, you know, I'm a customer, I've, I've noticed that you've made this commitment and I just want to say thank you to you. And it, you just, you know, you, you, watch, you watch someone's face transform because the art of gratitude is, is I think, something that, that we're getting less used to. Yeah, I, I love that. And I think it is really underutilised. If you're enjoying this conversation and want more, you can check out our website, australiaremade.org. Really doesn't matter where you live because this website has some pretty universal themes and stories and a beautiful vision that we wove together from listening to people from all walks of life answer the question, imagine you have woken up in the country of your dreams, what is it like? So I hope there'll be something there that will resonate or inspire you. Uh, we would love to hear from you if you have any questions, ideas, or feedback. The podcast email is podcast at australiaremade.org. Thanks. Greenpeace is also being sued at the moment by a, a big business. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, yeah, no, I'd be I'd be delighted to uh, to do so. Um, so look, the, the the mantra that I that I always have when um, someone in in business or you know in a sports club or something says, "What can I do?" is um, "Don't buy, don't supply, say why." And so you know the don't buy is you don't buy fossil fuels, you shift to clean power. The don't supply is um, you stop selling to fossil fuel companies. You know you do what um, Desmond Tutu urged us to do almost a decade ago, which is to apply a kind of apartheid style lens to fossil fuel companies and you say why which is that they're destroying everything we care about um, that we love and that we need to shift as a society but 
you know, none of that is about hating individuals or anything anything like that. It's about um, uh, it's about just taking the, the necessary steps to transform, to protect all that we love. Now, where these things get really interesting is with a company like AGL. So AGL is Australia's largest climate polluter. Um, they're responsible for roughly 8% of our annual domestic emissions, which is um, a little over double the next worst. Um, but you would not know this from going to their website. If you, if you go to their landing page, there's no mention of the word coal, but there's a whole lot of other stuff. If you go to- and just for anyone listening from overseas, sorry to interrupt there, AGL is a gas and electricity company in Australia, just in case you're wondering who they are. Oh. No, thank you for that. And uh, um, yeah, 80, 85% of the power they produce comes from coal, which is a really, really important um, thing to observe. And yeah, they have a little bit of a sliver of a renewables practice and some gas and stuff, but 85% from coal. They are Australia's uh, worst polluter. And they plan to keep burning coal until 2048, which is 18 years after what is now the internationally accepted um, date um, by which uh, OECD companies should have stopped burning coal at the latest, so 18 years after 2030. So um, we, Greenpeace, has, again, in, in close collaboration with our friends and allies, has launched a campaign to try and persuade AGL that it needs to um, commit to early coal closures. And what's more, that the, the future business strategy for this company, I mean, the way it becomes the kind of company that its employees can be proud of and, and that has a future is to become a 100% renewable superpower company. Um, and so we, we have launched this campaign with a um, the kind of report that is needed to set out the facts of the matter and then with a whole lot of advertisements parodying the AGL brand to draw attention to the fact that they are Australia's biggest climate polluter and that they need to change. And to our fairly uh, great surprise, AGL have brought a lawsuit uh, in which they are trying to say that it is unlawful to parody their logo. Um, Now, if they are successful in this litigation, the consequences for effective campaigning, which has relied on parodying logos for, you know, for years, um, but also for that matter, for satire, um, is pretty significant. So um, uh, the, the court case is uh, AGL were unsuccessful in, in seeking an ex parte um, injunction to prevent our use of the logo. So the ads are still out there in their, in the parody form that they are, um, but the matter is coming back on before the court in, in early June. It just tickles me slightly that they're not kind of coming at you on any of the facts. Like they're not saying, how dare you, you've totally misrepresented our business model and our intentions, or um, actually, you know, we're not, we're not terrible because we've got all of these plans. They're just saying, hey, don't use our logo. You can't do that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, uh, it's pretty extraordinary. And I mean, Mike Cannon-Brooks um, was sort of one of a, a series of quite prominent people who've just sort of looked at this and gone, really that that's their problem they're worried about their logo it's not you know the the crisis of the great barrier reef or the decline of the kelp forests or the fact that 35 million hectares of australia burned last summer what they're bothered about is their logo you know so you've got to wonder about the about the priorities um but it's a really important position of principle We, we cannot 
we cannot in a democracy, in a liberal democracy, allow a situation or to go unchallenged where you can't parody the logo of the country's biggest polluter. What about the critique that, you know, we sometimes hear, I think particularly um, from the right in the US, that sort of woke business is going to to become, you know, this anti-democratic force that instead of now working through democracy, um, it's dangerous to expect corporations. I mean, it's hilarious, right, that the right would make this critique on the one hand because they've been happy to have a certain amount of corporate rule by default. But now it's suddenly something that that is getting a lot of pushback. Do you do you think that there is a downside to bypassing, in a sense, um, say federal politics when it's just not moving fast enough or indeed at all, and working directly with and through business to kind of lead change on big social political, environmental challenges? Well, I don't think it's an either-or. Um, I certainly don't think business power should be reified at the expense of, of political power. I mean, I'm, I'm, a, <laughs> I'm a very big believer, um, both in my role at, at Greenpeace, but also um, I've written about this in a personal capacity, uh, in the importance of independent public institutions um, and that means the public service, it means uh, agencies that are independent of the sort of core public service. So I'm, I guess there are the equivalents in, in most countries. In Australia, we have the, the Commonwealth um, Science Agency, for example. I believe in an independent state-funded media. Um, uh, I believe that universities um, should be um, independent and publicly funded. Um, so I absolutely think we need to um, defend and expand the public realm, um, but there, but there will also always be political economy, and it is entirely right and proper that anyone who cares about the the fate of our country and our planet um, contests the rules of, of of political economy, and you know that includes uh, trying to influence and succeeding in influencing business to um, when it is engaged in the political process, because business will always be engaged in the political process, um, to see it driving in the right direction. Um, and the truth is that um, as uh, various um, both quant and qualitative studies have um, made really clear, um, while no business will ever call for government intervention in those terms, actually, <laughs> if you ask business what is the most effective way of, of, of getting all business to do the right thing, it's creating a set of stable, transparent rules and sticking to them. Um, so, you know, we need much stronger laws all around the world to put people and planet at the centre of our societies. You know, this is why we are here. Um, and ultimately, uh, it is it, business will benefit from what it will see as um, market certainty. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I love what you said before about changing the rules so that it is easier for business to be ethical, so they don't have to go against the grain or put themselves at a kind of unfair disadvantage in a market competition just to do the right thing. Um, 
And so what about, you know, kind of staying with politics here for a minute? Obviously, there's been this massive change from the Trump to the Biden administration in the US. And I think a lot of us have been really struck by how much of a priority uh, the Biden administration has made climate action, um, even with, you know, all the other crises that they are facing, and, and rightly so. And I'm curious to hear whether to hear your read on this and whether you think that this really does represent a game changer, you know, not just for America, but really for the world and for, you know, the politics here in Australia. Yeah, look, I don't think there is any question that we have, we have, you know, at long last, we have seen the moment of pivot that we have all been working so hard, or so many of us have been working so hard for, for many years. So the extraordinary nature of the, of the, Biden commitments of the um, developing commitments in Europe, the the um, the leadership shown by the UK, the announcements coming out of um, of China, of Japan, of Korea, and so on. You know, none of it goes as far as we need to, but the momentum has radically shifted, and that has been driven by millions of people the world over millions, tens of millions of people working to secure that shift in momentum. And so it does now become really, I think, from here, a question of how fast and with how much um, justice and fairness along the way. And look, in, in, in it has put Australia in a very, very strange position. I mean, we are increasingly the deranged relative of multilateral gatherings, the kind of, you know, the, the, the sort maybe not all families have them, but but we all sort of, there's this, <laughs> we, know, we know the cartoon character of the deranged relative who just doesn't see the world the same way as everyone else. And, you know, um, in, in case you, your international listeners um, really aren't familiar with it, we, we have a government that has no target at all a national government with no target at all for reducing emissions that perpetually engages in the most sort of bizarre um, uh, fantasising about the fact that we are, uh, or, you know, claiming we're taking effective climate action when when we aren't, that continues to wildly subsidise the, the fossil fuel sector and to talk about opening new gas plants and new, new coal and it's, it's just they they really are, and this is a country where thirty five million hectares burned a year ago, or, or a little more than a year ago now, um, and and the rest of the world just looks absolutely aghast at, at just this this extraordinary, um, uh, weird um, death cult sort of fantasy strangeness. You know, Australia for a long time had this sort of reputation as being, you know, we, we, we did some great things in the world. We were there for World Park Antarctica to preserve it as a park for peace and science. We made significant contributions to, to peace processes. You know, the, the way in which we had stepped up to the plate on um, anti-apartheid boycotts and we had dismantled our own white Australia policy and um, we had taken steps to decolonise and to eliminate discrimination against Indigenous people and um, had, a, had a history of, of women's suffrage and of, of um, uh, 
the the living wage and a whole lot of other stuff in our history. And then at some point, at some point, this country um, started getting a very different sort of international reputation. And the sheer embarrassment now that goes with how we are regarded globally is is not is not a nice thing. And the rubber will hit the road for business. As carbon, as border adjustment mechanisms start to come in, the rubber is going to hit the road for business. Um, and that's, you know, in more straight economic terms. But all of us suffer from the Australian government's inaction because Australia is a significant player. We are one of the top five producers of emissions when you include all domestic and all imported emissions. Just the scale of our continent is significant. The, the, the role that we play in the region, um, you know, in the top dozen largest economies in the world, the second largest exporter of coal, there are a whole lot of ways in which Australia is significant. And right now, we are acting as a kind of drain on the world's efforts. Yeah, the whole time you were talking about, you know, Australia's attitude, I was just thinking, we just export a lot of coal. We really love to export a lot of coal. And I mean, this has been uh, a kind of bigger theme in frustration in, in other countries as well, where it seems like the closer you are to democracy at the local level, sometimes at the state level, you can get action, you can get leadership, you can get change. And certainly we're seeing that in Australia as well. But then the further away it gets, it feels like the more the vested interests can just come in and call the shots, even when the opinion polls show that the vast majority of people think this is a real problem and want something real to be done about it. Yeah, look, I think... Um... We, we, it is sort of extraordinary because at the local level, you know, the, the climate emergency declaration was an Australian democratic invention. We should be very proud of that. Um, we have seen really wonderful commitments at a state level, at a territory level. Um, we are seeing some Australian businesses do some terrific things. Um, of course, Australian civil society and then there's the national government, and um, I, it is it is vested interests. But I've I've increasingly come to think of it as more than just vested interests, as instead there being the existence of what you might call a sort of um, you might refer to as the fossil fuel order, um, which is a sort of array of power that exists. Um, it includes the vested interests themselves, so the coal, gas, and oil companies. But it extends beyond that into lobby groups, into um, advisory advisory businesses, into um, networks within politics and the public service, into sponsorship arrangements, into um, uh, uh, even into the, just the way we we imagine our society. So it's got kind of ideological, discursive. Um, public imaginary dimensions to it. I've tried to flesh this out a little bit in a piece that's uh, out uh, very shortly in Arena magazine um, called Empire of the Dead, which really tries to describe how I think that that it, these things do function more than just as vested interests, that there's a whole array of power. But the fantastic thing is while we have this fossil fuel order still in the ascendancy, the clean energy order is rising and the rebellion will prevail. 
and you can see the contours of the clean energy order there in the passion of the school strikers, in the uh, the shifting of, of, of clean energy entrepreneurs, of the announcements of, of some of the unions, of the work of civil society in the money moving. You can see the bones of the new emerging, but the, the old is, is doing its best to cling on. I just love it when you get all preacher on us. It's fantastic. <laughs> um, you know, this has just been, as I knew it would be, such a beautiful and illuminating chat. And I, I think as we kind of get ready to sort of bring it in home, I wanted to return a little full circle, sort of back to that kind of personal level, because um, you're someone who whose leadership I really admire. And I kind of want to know how you stay sane. Like I spoke to this lawyer recently and she's worked her career in the kind of community legal center and looking at, you know, social change and legal reform. And, and she said, you know, in this really human, like not in an arrogant way at all, but just sort of tired about the burden of all of this knowledge and all of these years of caring and that there's just this small part of her sometimes that just wants to unknow everything that she has learned and lead a quote unquote normal life, you know, just doing something completely unrelated to social justice or saving the world. And I, I just wonder, you know, do you ever relate to that feeling? Because I'm sure that even if you're somehow superhuman and don't, you probably know a lot of people who do, you know, your staff and colleagues and the climate scientists, like how, how do you do what you do and, and stay kind of sane and, and pretty happy? I experience you as a pretty happy person. Um, well, I'm glad you <laughs> experienced me that way, Lily, and it's, it's mutual. You, I experience you as a very happy person. Um, I... Um, Look, I can remember what it, what it, in some ways, what it felt like to be, to not think about climate and, and the ecological crisis quite as much as I do now. But there are always burdens of knowing. There are always burdens of knowing. And I can think of any number of times in my life when the revelation of knowing that something had happened or was happening um, was something that I had to um, absorb um, or that, you know, happened in my life because this is part of being alive and we, all of us, you know, what, what is a normal life? We, we all bear, we all bear something. We all bear our frailties. Now this is the this is the cruelty of the neoliberal model of this the self-maximizing model that it imagines that 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 is not an, an absolutely innate part of being human um, because we are all born needing help. We all get sick. Those of us who are lucky will get old and then we will die. And we all of us will experience rain, times of rainfall in a bad way, using that metaphor in a negative way, in our, in our lifetimes. But then, yes, it is possible to, to choose a life where you, you push some of those things into the background and it is possible to choose a life where to a lesser or greater extent your work requires you to, to focus on some of the challenges we face. 
But I have to say that personally, I regard it as an enormous gift of the cosmos that I that I get paid to work for an organisation that I love to to on on the things I most deeply care about um, at a time when it matters most. Um, and knowing the truth about some of these things, I mean, it is a cliche, but knowing the truth about some of these things sets you free. And I've made a very conscious decision to, to try and always be open to the truth of just how bad and serious the situation we are in now is. Because coming back to your earlier question about hope, Hope cannot be wishful because if hope is wishful, it is fantasy. So my articulation of hope will always be grounded in the mud of truth. And, and I get to do. I get to do in the day-to-day. And also to come back to your earlier question, um, that doing is alongside a truly wonderful team. The people with whom I work at Greenpeace are an exceptional team of people. Now, colleagues and, and friends and allies in the movement are a great source of strength. And, and everyone who is involved, every one of those folks earlier on who you mentioned who comes up and says, what can I do? Every one of those conversations is a source of strength. Any, you, you look around you in this world and you find the partnerships and the handshakes and the arms on the shoulder, the kind words and the hugs of solidarity, of purpose, of love. There is no question. And then there's a love you find that if you are, again, lucky in this world, you find in the home. And I am, I am blessed to, to share a life with the love of my life. Um, and we're blessed with children and a, and a fairly annoying puppy and, you know. So I'm sorry, it's a very long answer. No, it's a beautiful <laughs> answer. Thank you. All right. Well, as we are going to be out of time soon, I wanted to um, end with just a few rapid-fire questions. Your answers can be silly or serious. It can be big or small. It can be just what's off the top of your head. Um, you've already alluded to a great list just then, but what is something that is making life better for you right now? Oh, look, I've just got to say it. My um, my favourite rock band in the world is Midnight Oil. And, I, you know, they they um, I think the album they brought out a little while ago was terrific and being able to, to hit, hit play on um, some New Oil's music after, you know, almost 20 years is a pretty special thing. Um, and they've got another new album coming out later this year. So, you know. As a tragic Oils fan, that's been great. <laughs> I love it. What is something that people often get wrong about you? So when people meet me for the first time and they know what I do, they generally have a set of assumptions uh, in their head about what I will be like. And I very frequently get told by people, you're not what I expected. Um, you know, sometimes that is just about how I look. It's like, you know, I thought you'd we have dreadlocks or something and, you know, I'm, I'm basically bald, so I couldn't have dreadlocks um, even if I tried my hardest. Um, but the I, I, have, I have had... And it struck me as a compliment I've really, I've really cherished, actually, that I've had a couple of people say to me recently that they've been surprised how gentle I am. 
Oh, that's beautiful. And it feels it, it feels quite um, uncomfortable to say out loud, partly because reporting back a compliment someone's given you always feels uncomfortable, but also because it doesn't necessarily map onto traditional masculine virtues in Australia. Um, but, but, yeah, a couple of people recently have said to me, I was surprised by how gentle you were. I love that. What's something you wish you were better at? Oh, Lily, where do you start? Look, in a, in a work context, I wish I was um, better at, at always being honest if I haven't been properly briefed for a discussion because I think everyone's time is valuable and particularly as a, as a decision maker or a leader in an organisation, you, you owe it to your people to always be well briefed when they when when you have the conversation, so I would really like to you know hold myself to the highest possible standards um, around that. Um, I'd also like to be better about not not checking the phone when I'm not at work because you're kind of always at work when you're in a campaigning organisation. But I don't want my children to remember me as the father that when they looked up at him, he was looking at his phone. Um, and you know, in a more sort of mundane personal sense. There's, I can't. I, I have never learnt to do anything musical. I don't even know if I am musical because I've never actually tried. And I can't speak anything other than English. So I wish I could make lavender flourish in the front garden. And um, and I've never quite managed to uh, uh, to cook the soup. I'd really be proud of. So. <laughs> you will not be bored in retirement. Oh, I love it. Um, all right, and then you know just to just to have one final recommendation from you and look i have written down midnight oil rebecca solid hope in the dark michael mann um we're going to have links to anything that you've mentioned here in the show but is there any other little recommendation that you would pass on a book or a podcast a tv show something that you've loved recently or that you just couldn't stop thinking about yes um at the start of this year on the recommendation of um uh, a dear friend, Jessica Panagiris. I uh, read um, Simone de Beauvoir's novel, The Mandarins, um, and it's an incredible novel about how publicly minded, um, <laughs> for the most part, morally serious um, people in France at the end of the Second World War make their decisions about how to be in the world. And I just found it really, really thought-provoking and evocative around the kinds of decisions that we all need to make now in this moment of um, in this moment of, of existential crisis about how we live in the world. There are there are big decisions for us all to make, and it was a it was a book that that really helped me think about that by by approaching big decisions in another time and place. Um, of course, the fact that they are all, you know, insanely glamorous folks uh, in Paris um, drinking aperitifs doesn't hurt in the in the reading. It's also just it's also just beautifully written. David Ritter, you do us proud. Thank you so much for your time and energy, company, and thoughts today. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I've enjoyed every minute. Pleasure is all mine, Lily. Thank you. David Ritter, everybody. Isn't he kind of the best? 
I sent him an email after our conversation telling him the one question that I hadn't managed to ask, which is how do you talk to your kids about climate change? And what he wrote was so beautiful that I had to share it with you. So I'm just going to read out a little bit of it now. He wrote back to me, what I say to my kids is really an extension of what I say to anyone. It is really bad and bad things are happening as a consequence. But I tell them everyone you know and love is working their hardest to help get us through this. Yes, bad things may happen, but we are doing our best. And meanwhile, there is love and beauty in the world. And we know that people working together can achieve anything. And it doesn't help to worry, but we should work our hardest to achieve change at the biggest level we can. And then he kind of admits to me, have I sat them down? Remember, his kids are in like late primary school. Have I sat them down in detail and said, this is what is likely to happen in your lifetime? No, I haven't. But I answer their questions very directly when they ask, yes, the Great Barrier Reef could die. Yes, the Arctic could be gone. Yes, fires. Yes, the coming of terrible things. But this is why we fight. And then, if you must know, sometimes when they are asleep, I stand next to them in the dark and I stroke their faces with tears in my eyes because they should not have to face any of this. And then I think, but none of us get to choose when or where we are born. And the grief gets converted to fuel and I feel the steel of my mother and her generation and the task that is at hand and that my job is to put all that I am and have in service of the mission. And I think of the lines from Wilfred Owen's The Call, which go, For leaning out last midnight on my sill, I heard the sighs of men that have no skill to speak of their distress, no, nor the will, a voice I know, and this time I must go. He ends with an apology. Sorry, Lily, that is probably more than you wanted apologies for oversharing. But of course, there is no such thing as too much David Ritter or his wisdom. So I hope you've enjoyed this conversation and thank you so much for listening today. Can't wait to hear you next time and have you over on The Remakers. This has been The Remakers, a podcast by Australia Remade. We celebrate Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and cultures at the very heart of what it is to be Australian. That is 60,000 years as the oldest continuing civilization on earth. I record this podcast from Dara country, which is just north of Sydney. I want to pay my deepest respects to elders past, present and emerging on this land. I also want to thank my collaborator in chief and sometimes special guest co-host, Millie Rooney. Also a huge thank you to our producer, Anna Wilson, and our chair, Louise Tarrant. If you like our theme song, it is by the Duke of Norfolk. You can learn more about Australia Remade and get links and show notes over on our website. That's australiaremade.org and click on the podcast tab. Follow us so you never miss an episode. Be sure to spread the word. If you're feeling extra amazing, you can rate and review. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. We will see you next time.